Well, with this Lord's Day, we uh, are into the beginning of the week that leads into the death and resurrection of our Lord. And we've seen visual reminders of that this morning through the palm branches that are before us and uh, the cross, the crown of thorns. This reminds us of the events that we are commemorating of Good Friday. Palm Sunday before that, Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. Did you notice that all three of those last songs were about Jesus, and even the ones that were part of that first package sang about his love. We sang about the fact that he is our only hope. He is our light, our strength, our song, our cornerstone, our solid ground. It is through the blood of Christ alone that we are made white as snow. Here in the death of Christ, we stand Well, all those great truths that form a lot of the content of our songs are because of, ha- of what happened during that one week, starting with Jesus' arrival into the city of Jerusalem on a colt when people were waving those palm branches, people were laying down their garments. If you have ever watched Hockey Night in Canada on a Saturday night in the last 30 years or so, you'll probably have heard the voice of Bob Cole. Bob Cole is a longtime play-by-play voice of Hockey Night in Canada, and he's got a few signature sayings. When he gets really excited, he usually comes out with a, oh, baby, that sort of thing. But one of those signature sayings came through at a playoff game a few years ago between Boston and Montreal, which is a great rivalry if you follow hockey at all. And it was close to the end of a close game. There's a couple of minutes left, and the action was just going up and down the ice. Montreal, I think, was up by one goal, but... At one point, he just had no other way to describe what was going on, and he uttered the line, everything is happening. Everything is happening, and that's become a signature line since then. People get, there's a big flurry of activity, they'll say, everything is happening. Well, for Christians, this is the week where we remember a time when everything was happening. In many ways, in this one condensed week, it it was that time where God incarnate, Jesus Christ, accomplishes everything necessary for the salvation of his people. The week finishes with the glorious resurrection of our Lord, which we've come to name Easter Sunday, or my preference says Resurrection Sunday. But, but right from the time that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday until the resurrection, everything is happening. There's jubilation as he comes in on that donkey. There's indignation from Jesus himself as he goes into the temple and turns over the, the tables of the money changers. There's, there's instruction as Jesus continues to teach. There is intense prayer. There is symbolism around a meal, around the Lord's Supper. There is opposition from the Romans. There is high treason from the leaders of Jesus' own religion. There's betrayal from within the 12 followers of Jesus. There's denial from within his inner circle of three. There's a mock trial. There's a wrongful conviction. There's mockery. There's torture. All of these things happen in the first four or so days of the week. Everything is happening there in Jerusalem. But all of those happenings lead to two particular events that are central to the Christian faith. There's a death and there's a life. Both of those things happen 
in, actually in the reverse order, during this last week from Sunday to Sunday. Usually we talk about life and then death, but here we have death and then life. But those two historical events, death and life, are also two concepts that rise to the top of everything that we need to know and to understand about the Christian faith. Jesus experienced both of those things as a kind of culmination and fulfillment of those concepts throughout the scriptures. That is to say that the death, that death and life bring us to that week in the city of Jerusalem, in the province of Judea, in the country of Israel. And those two concepts flow out of that week in Jerusalem into the first century and become important to us on this side of that week, 2,000 years later, as we live as followers of Jesus and as we await eternity with Jesus. And so during these two Lord's Days where we are again reminded of these things, we want to think about death this Sunday and then life on Resurrection Sunday. And so I'm calling this little two-week series Christianity, a life and death proposition. That's a little play on words, but it is literally true. There is a, first of all, there's an urgency and an exclusivity about the Christian faith. And Christ's death and life are based on what we would call propositional truths, in the sense that they are historically true. But we like to say that the whole Bible is composed of propositional truths, in that they're filled with statements that are truth-bearing. And in that way, Christian truth is based on teaching that can lead either to life or to death. It's that important. And that's why it's important that we see how these two concepts uh, develop in the unfolding story of the Bible. This coming Friday, we will remember the death of Jesus on a cross on on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I hope you'll all have the opportunity to, to come to Calvary Baptist Church as a number of our churches gather together. To, uh, to, to think about the cross and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, 10 o'clock on Friday at Calvary Baptist Church. But on Palm Sunday, today, day that we uh, commemorate, he, he came into town with great public fanfare. Crowds were cheering. But by Friday, he was about to die in great public shame, having been beaten, abused, Mocked, scorned. Isaiah prophesied about a child that would be called Mighty God and that he would sit on the throne of David as king. Yet now that same child, one who was once a child born in Bethlehem, is now going to a cross where he would die. What was that all about? How could the Son of God die? That's what confused the followers of Jesus back in that day. And ironically, the people that waited for this coming king, the religious leaders that knew all of the Old Testament prophecies, those same people were the ones that put Jesus to death. How? Why? Well, that's the question we want to examine today. Why did Jesus die on Friday? Why is death part of God's grand plan for saving sinners? Why is the death of his own son part of God the Father's purpose? Well, to start to answer those questions, we have to go way back to the Old Testament 
and way back to the first book of the Bible, in the very second chapter. We're going to be jumping around the Bible quite a bit today in order to see that death is indeed part of God's plan, from cover to cover. It is indeed a necessary part of God's plan. So take your Bibles up or your electronic device, whatever it is. You're going to be a lot, doing a lot of flipping around and, or a lot of tapping. If you don't have a Bible with you, we do have some that are uh, in the chairs in front of you. They are decreasing as people are um, helping themselves to them, and we do encourage you to do that. If you are uh, new to the Christian faith, if you don't own a Bible, make sure you find one in the, one of the chairs in front of you and take it. We would love for you to have God's Word as our gift to you. And if you're new, just as we go through these passages, um, if you're new to a Bible, uh, you can look in the table of contents to see where the books are, are found, and then there's, we usually mention two numbers. There's a first number, that's a chapter number, and then the second number is the verse number. So hopefully that helps you out a little bit. So turn to Genesis 1. That should be easy to find, the very first page. And we'll take a quick look at the opening pages of God's Word. Genesis 1, we all know, is about creation, including the creation of life, the creation of living creatures, first fish, and then birds, and then animals, the the creeping things, and finally, the height of God's creation, man and woman, uniquely created in the end of chapter 1, says, in the image and likeness of God. But in Genesis 2, in verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So there's life all around. God creates out of nothing this thing called life. Life is everywhere, including human life, man and woman, given the capacity to, to think and to reason and to make decisions. That's what sets humankind apart from the rest of creation. God puts the man in a garden, and right in the middle of the garden, he puts two trees. One is called the tree of life, and the other is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with this ability to reason, God gives them free reign of the garden, dominion. They could eat from every tree in the garden, except one. And with that uh, prohibition, we're introduced to the concept of death. The first mention of death happens. And it comes in God's uh, prohibition. It's in Genesis 2, verse 17. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. This is the first shall not of the Bible, by the way. It doesn't happen in the Ten Commandments. It happens here already. You shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death. There it is. Hadn't been any death in God's created world, but disobeying the Creator God leads to death. And as a side note, once Adam and Eve do eat of the tree, they don't physically die on that day, as God had said there. They, they go on to have children and so on, but, but they do die on that day in a, in a spiritual way. They die a spiritual death, and eventually they die physically too, because of their disobedience. 
course, you know the story. In Genesis 3, the serpent comes and, and, and he actually 100% contradicts God's word. He says to the woman, in total opposition to Genesis 2.17, he says, you shall not surely die. So instead of you shall surely die, he puts a nod in there. You shall not surely die. But alas, the, sermon, the, or the serpent was crafty and deceptive, and they disobey God, they eat of the tree, and God tells Adam in chapter 3, verse 19, you are dust. <laughs> Ever heard someone say that to someone else? You're dust. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death. Romans 6 tells us the same thing, right? The wages of sin is death. God's word is always true. The devil's word is always untrue. They should have listened to God. And with that, we have the arrival of death. And from that point on, death reigns all over the place. So first we have life all over the place, but now we have death all over the place. At the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and they're cut off from the tree of life. And so naturally, when you're cut off from the tree of life, death dominates. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all men, and did it ever. Like right now. In Genesis 4, human being number 3 kills human being number 4. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? And by the end of chapter 4, Lamech says, I have killed a man. It's almost like he brags about it. And off we go, violence, every man for himself. And in Genesis 5, we have a a chapter of genealogies. All the so-and-so begat so-and-so. But they all end with, and he died. And so we're left to wonder, is God really in control? How has he planned to deal with this? Is is life ever going to get the upper hand again over death? In Genesis 6, God gets into the act here. He he sees all the evil of humankind and and they're bent toward death and evil. And so he says in chapter 6, verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man, animals, creeping things, and the the birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. And so here you have God, the one who created life, saying that he wants to reverse creation. But in the very next verse, we catch a glimpse that that God's actually going to do something else about death. He will indeed judge evil, and and he does that with the flood. But he will also grant grace. And so after he says, I am sorry that I have made them, look at Genesis 6, verse 8. But, oh, I love the contrast in Scripture, are always just filled with grace. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Some versions translate favor as grace. It wasn't that Noah was a perfect character. In fact, he had, he had many flaws that you'd see if you just kept on reading. But God, in his sovereign grace, spares Noah and his family. He, he saves them from judgment and death. Later in that chapter, God tells Noah, everything on the earth will die. But, and there's another contrast, but I will establish my covenant with you. That's a huge hint of what's to come. We can't do anything about death. 
We've been blocked, right, from access to the tree of life. But God uses death to put a highlighter over his grace and kindness and his mercy. God uses death to highlight his grace and kindness, mercy, his love, all those attributes of God. And sure enough, God starts to use death for his purposes, for his glory. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system is exhibit one of that. It actually starts right after all the animals get off the ark back in Genesis. Noah offers some of the animals to the Lord. And it says that the aroma goes up and is pleasing to God. And then that whole thing reaches full bloom as you get to Leviticus, when God instructs Moses on how to sacrifice the animals. The whole point of all that killing of animals and all of that blood that you read about in Leviticus is that the death of an animal was the only way of approaching God. God and man had been separated due to sin. They had been blocked from the tree of life. But now God provides a way for humankind to, at least in some imperfect way in the Old Testament, draw near to God. And that way is by means of death. The death of an animal. And so repeatedly in Leviticus you'll read things like that the sacrifice was a pleasing aroma, a pleasing fragrance to the Lord. Death was a way of approaching God. And that's important to remember as we go along. But death is also uh, as a result of sin. It's always connected to sin. But the other thing to remember is that when it comes to human life, God is in control over death. So, So there's animals there that are being sacrificed, but when it comes to human life, God is in control over death and he uses it for his purposes. And so back to Genesis 9, God tells Noah that we are not to shed the blood of man. Only God could do that, even though there are times when man could bear the sword on God's behalf. And the principle in chapter 9, verse 6, whoever shed the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. There's the principle. God made man in his own image. So God is in control of life and death when it comes to humankind. And we could get into all sorts of ethical discussions on this in regard to um, whether capital punishment is just and those kinds of discussions. But all of those discussions are based on the fact that death and life are under God's control. And we have to come to recognize God's sovereignty even over death. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next week, the implications of that in uh, in regard to the culture of death that we live in today, where humankind has horrifically, for the most part, tried to take those things into our own hands. I just read an article on Friday about the first man in Ontario that was granted by the courts a physician-assisted death. That now sets a very scary precedent, in my opinion, coming from a biblical worldview. At any rate, in the Old Testament, the whole concept of death comes as a result of human sin. But in some ways, death is redeemed by God and used for his divine purposes and glory and for our good. And so when God enacts a covenant with Abraham, starting in Genesis 15, that, that all happens through the death of an animal. The way to approach God, as we've seen, is through the death of an animal. And that brings up the entire concept of death as substitution. 
Sin leads to death. Sin separates us from God. And so in order to get to God, God, in his grace again, allows for an animal to die instead of the sinner in order to at least be able to approach God again. So God uses death to enact covenants. He uses death as a way of making pleasing sacrifices. He uses death as a substitution. And most importantly, God uses death for forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's through death that we receive forgiveness. But the fact remains that death is part of the curse against sin. More precisely, death is God's punishment. Death is God's judgment against sin. And that's exemplified through divine punishment by death. Especially when God is not worshipped or when he's worshipped in wrong ways. And so, in a place like Exodus 32, the people make a golden calf. You might remember that story. Uh, While Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from God, uh, the people down below lost their patience and they replaced God with an inferior object of worship. And nothing... Nothing arouses God's anger more than idolatry. And so we read that 3,000 of God's chosen people are put to death. In Leviticus 10, the sons of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu don't sacrifice exactly as God prescribed. And it says, fire came out from before the Lord, right from the Lord, and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. That is direct punishment, judgment from God. And that principle carries through the New Testament too. An example of that is Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Death is God's punishment against humankind for sin. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, The way of the wicked will perish. That's the consistent reality from Genesis to Psalms to Romans to Revelation. But all of that, all of that sets the stage now for the person of Jesus Christ. You read all that and you go, we need something to save us here. All those concepts have to stay in our minds as we come to Jesus. Covenant, substitution, sacrifice, punishment. And it's in Jesus that God actually redeems death finally and completely. Death is bad. But through Jesus, God makes death, although terrible, 1 Corinthians 15 calls death the last enemy, he makes death into something good. And so let's see how he does that. The prophet Isaiah starts to prophesy about this suffering servant, and he says things like that this servant is numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And it says that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. It says they made his grave, so you're still talking about death here, they made his grave with the wicked, though there was no deceit in his mouth. And so we see that he's going to be killed, but also that he wasn't wicked. He didn't deserve to die. So why did he die? It would be for the transgressions of my people. A substitute. Suffering and dying, not for his own sins, but for someone else's sins. And when Jesus comes along, he actually confirms himself that he must die. In fact, 
he does this repeatedly, at least three separate times that we read about in the Gospels. And so I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We were at the first book of the Old Testament in Genesis, and now I want you to go to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, and go over to chapter 16. Matthew 16 and verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. If you read the section before, starting in verse 13, Peter had just made this great confession of Jesus and the Christ, and now he's calling him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's all part of God's purpose. Jesus began to show that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed. Was God's will. Flip over to chapter 17, verse 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. They will kill him. They're greatly distressed. Uh, Luke's version of this same uh, second time that Jesus tells them about this, it it actually adds there, when he talks to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. He's trying to get them to understand. And they're not quite there yet at this point. And just go over to chapter 20, verse 17. Matthew 20, verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Interesting here that Jesus was determined to do this. We are going. They will condemn him could have said me, to death. They will condemn the Son of Man to death. And there we have it. Death was part of God's plan for his Son. Many people, somewhat rightly, wonder how that could be. As many within even the Christian community have called this cosmic child abuse. But when we see all these connections, you can see that death was the only way to deal with death. Death is the only way to deal with death. God sent God to die as the only way to atone for sins. John Owen captures this perfectly in the title of his classic book from way back in the 1600s. The title of the book is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Christ must be killed in order to kill death. 
in order to reverse the curse of the garden. You shall surely die. That needed to be reversed. God in his magnanimous, maybe we could say his outrageous love, provided a way for sin's penalty of death to be defeated. His love is shown in that he sent his son to die on behalf of sinners so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. The death of death in the death of Christ. Peter ended up eventually understanding that Jesus must die and that it was part of God's plan all along. In Acts 2.23, as he preaches in Jerusalem, he says, this Jesus delivered up Listen to this. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was all part of God's definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's the sovereignty of God there, and there's responsibility, human responsibility as well. It was all part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus must be killed. The fact that Jesus died was the heart of the teaching and writing of the apostles then. Uh, they really bring everything into the Bible, in, in the Bible together and they fill it with meaning for you and for me. Uh, just reflect on the section from Romans 5. Romans 5, verses starting at, I think it's verse 6. Yeah, Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that precious and amazing? This is what the events of this week are all about. This is our Savior. This is God's grace and, and love for sinners. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, said this just before he died. He, said, he says, uh, he was getting old, his memory was starting to go. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. So we have death, through sin, because of sin, we have Jesus, perfect God, perfect sinless man who, who comes and dies for sinners instead of sinners. But it is interesting to me that dying and death don't actually end there for Christians. It actually keeps working this whole concept of death for the followers of Jesus. And it all flows out from that cross uh, and what happened there, and it happens now for us on two levels. One, Jesus calls us to live a life of self-sacrifice. Jesus tells us, uh, right after he predicts his death to his disciples, he says uh, in Matthew 16, this is in that same section where he's making all these predictions about his, uh, the fact that he must die. So Matthew 16, 24, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. And listen to this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so Jesus is here calling us to follow him into a life of, uh, uh, into a way of life losing sacrifice for his sake. 
But second, flowing from Christ's death, we are now enabled to kill sin in our lives. To put it to death. Peter again says this most clearly. 1 Peter 2.24 He, uh, talking about Jesus, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin. See the connection? Jesus dies that we might die to sin. Because of Jesus, we can be killers. Cold-blooded killers of the sin that, that rears its ugly head in all of us. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Or Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, all believers, have crucified... There's that death again, death image. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Because Jesus died for your sins, you see, you've got to be at war against sin in your own life. Don't let it linger. Don't let it turn into a staph infection. Kill it. If you start to let worldliness, uh, things of the world seep in, kill them. If you start noticing your eyes and your mind drifting to filthy images or thoughts, kill them. If you notice greed or pride or gossip or or lying or, or cheating, take the knife to those things. Cut them out. John Owen's other famous line is, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it's going to be killing you. God graciously gives us his Holy Spirit to help us with this, thankfully, because we wouldn't do this if we were left to ourselves. It's the Spirit that convicts us of sin. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's the irony and the beauty of this thing. If you, if you will kill sin in your life, you will live. It's a great promise. God is so good to take us from a point of you will surely die to while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and he's not done yet, to enabling us to die to sin. This is the good news of Christ's death. It was a terrible event. It was horrific suffering and death. It came at a tremendous cost, mostly because our sins are so horrific. But it was all part of God's loving and saving purposes so that you might have life. If you're not a Christian, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, believing in the accomplishments of his death to save you. Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If you are a believer, think about the ugliness of death due to sin, but also think of the beauty of death as it has been redeemed by God and defeated by Jesus on the cross. Because of all that, if you are in Christ, you don't need to fear physical death either. That's still a reality, but for the Christian, physical death is the beginning of eternal life with Jesus, right? In the presence of God. That's why Paul could write, we do not grieve as others who do not have no hope. We know that we have passed from death to life. Father, we are in 
awe of your plan. We are in awe of your purposes. We thank you that in eternity past, you knew how you would orchestrate the salvation of your people. Your word is so wonderfully consistent, harmonious, and unified, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to see that today. And we thank you, our Father, for the cross of Jesus Christ, for defeating death through the death of your Son. We can't express in enough ways how grateful we are for your grace and for your mercy. And we know the final word of death comes right at the end of the book when it tells us that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire and death will be no more. We look so forward to that. But until then, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to keep putting sin to death in our lives. You've given us the weapons to do that through your Word. And because, our, because you have made us into new creations, the old is gone, the new has come. Help us to that end, we pray. And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.